This evening, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. Looking to verses 34 through 40 of the 22nd chapter of Matthew, in this final sermon of 2023, I want to preach a contrasting message to this morning's sermon on lukewarmness. Examining the testimony of the Laodicean church in the morning service, we considered five ways we can grow to be indifferent in our relationship toward God in the year to come. From Revelation 3, 14 through 22, I gave you explicit instructions regarding how we can become spiritually stagnant, how we can be worshipfully apathetic, biblically careless, and ultimately disgusting in the eyes of the Lord. And let me refresh your memory real briefly. With Revelation 3, 14 through 22 as our guiding text, I stated in the morning sermon that if you desire to be lukewarm in the year to come, you must, number one, be careless about spiritual things and specifically regarding the care of your soul. You must, number two, flatter yourself that you are spiritually strong and do not need to change anything as it relates to your walk with God. And then number three, if you want to be spiritually apathetic, you must refuse to listen to the counsel and rebukes of Christ through others. And then number four, if you desire to be lukewarm in 2024, you must reject the promptings of the Spirit as it regards to the repentance of sin. And then number five, if you want to be lukewarm, if you want to be stagnant, if you want to just be a status quo Christian in the next year, you must keep your ears closed to the truths of God's Word. If you want to align yourself with the lukewarm condition that God despises in 2024, if you want to be a miserable Christian, if you want to avoid God's blessing in your life, then you must implement these five behaviors in your day-to-day activities. When the clock strikes midnight tonight, when the new year comes upon us first things in the morning, just implement these five things and you will, of a surety, be a lukewarm believer. Now, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that all of us in our hearts are responding to these truths spoken by the Laodicean church by saying, Pastor, Pastor, may it never be. I'm hoping that our earnest prayer to God is, God, please keep me from becoming a lukewarm Christian in 2024. I'm earnestly prayerful that in the consideration of these truths that we've looked at, that the longing of our soul is, Lord, help me to be an enthusiastic worshiper. Help me to be a zealous servant of Christ. Help our church to be a church that brings delight to you rather than disgust to you. I'm hoping that a majority of us have a holy resolve to fight against lukewarmness in the year to come. And if this is so, if you do not wish to align yourself with the Laodicean church, 
In this evening's sermon, I want to set before you several positive steps regarding how you and I can grow to love God and love others more in 2024. And this is the title of the sermon that I will be preaching tonight, Loving God and Others More in 2024. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. And when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt, love thyself, as thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now with this text as our foundation, I want to begin by explaining in our first point the implication of the text and then give several practical ways in our second point that we can apply this text in our day-to-day living. So in our first point, I want us to consider the implication of Christ's words. And then in our second point, I want us to consider the implementation of the text. So starting with the implication or the meaning of the text, let's begin with an examination of the question that is asked of Jesus. The question that is asked of Jesus in verse 36 is, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, it is important to keep in mind that many questions were hurled at Jesus during the course of his three-year ministry on earth. And these questions were intended to baffle him and embarrass him before others. Jesus' main adversaries, namely the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, were constantly like annoying little gnats buzzing at your face, and they refused to leave you alone. These Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes were asking Jesus questions constantly with the intention of accusing Jesus of being someone who spoke against Moses and spoke against the law. And we find in our text that this is one of those instances. So with an arrogant attitude of doubt and disrespect, this lawyer approaches the Lord Jesus with the question of all the commandments given in the law, which is the greatest? Which one, Jesus, is the most important? Is it, thou shalt have no other gods before me? Is it, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? Is it the need to keep the Sabbath day holy? You see, the rabbis concluded that there were 613 commandments extracted from the law of Moses that were binding on the Jews. And there was a great fuss and a a great debate among the Jews, and specifically among the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, regarding which one among the 613 was the most important. You see, to the Jews, 
the law was separated into two groups. There were the greater commandments and there were the smaller commandments. The greater commandments should be obeyed without question and without hesitation. While the smaller commandments might be neglected or violated with little or no guilt. So the question being pitched at Jesus is essentially this. Among all the commandments, among the list of the greater commandments that man cannot argue, which one is the preeminent one? Which one is the most important? And Jesus, who can read right through their cunning inquiry, responds with an answer that is meant to convict, silence, and humble them before his presence. Notice the answer beginning in verse 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Which is the single most important commandment in the law? While the religious leaders of the day were foolishly arguing and debating about the greatest one being a law concerning sacrifice, a law concerning washing and purifying, a law concerning circumcision, Jesus, as his manner was, cuts through all the nonsense and tells them plainly that the greatest commandment given by God is to love him with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and out of that, to love others as oneself. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus is quoting the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what we call the Shema, which was and still is the daily prayer of many Jews. Do you see Jesus' wisdom here? Do you see how Jesus takes the hammer of truth and shatters the question that is posed to him in a thousand pieces. Instead of promoting one command over another, Jesus defined the law in its core principle. Jesus says the essence of the law, the essence of God's word, the essence of Christianity is to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple. On these two commandments, Hang all the law and the prophets. If we can boil down everything that was said in the law and the prophets, it would be these two points. God's moral expectation of man can be briefly put into two sentences. We are to love God sincerely and supremely, and we are to love others sincerely and sacrificially. That's what Christ is saying. That's the essence of the Christian life. Now, I want you to take careful notice in this response of Jesus, the quality of man's love for God. Now, this is a contrast of this morning's sermon on 
lukewarmness. The believers in Laodicea were nauseating to God because they were not obeying this all-important command. The church in Laodicea thought God was satisfied with half-hearted religion. They thought God was satisfied with giving God leftovers. They thought it was sufficient to profess love for God with their lips while their hearts remain far from Him. And Jesus here in our text is reminding us that the essence of the Christian life is all about loving Him with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now you say, Pastor, such a task is impossible. No man can love God with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, 24 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I say to you, this is precisely what Jesus wanted these proud, self-righteous Pharisees to acknowledge. Here they were patting themselves on the back, thinking that they deserved heaven because they were obeying some laws. And Jesus comes along and shatters such a thought into a million pieces. No man can love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this is precisely why you and I need a spiritual heart surgery. The only way for us to be right with God is to have a new heart. And the way to have a new heart is by acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy, our helpless, depraved condition, and cry out to God for mercy. And this is God's work of salvation. God's work of salvation is God cleansing our dirty, depraved hearts. God's work of salvation is God taking away our rebellious hearts, that heart of stone, and giving us a heart of flesh. So listen, you can't love God apart from being born again. You can't make yourself love God. You can't. But if and when we are given a new heart, if and when we are placed in Christ, then and only then will we have the desire to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Whereas before in our sin, we had no desire, no ability whatsoever to love God as we ought. We were blind to Christ's person. We were blind to Christ's love for us. But in Christ, we are given the longing to do what Christ commands us to do. And I'm not proposing, I'm not proposing that Christians can love God perfectly all the time, but I am proposing that as possessors of a new heart, possessors of a new nature, through the power of the Spirit, God's people do have a desire to love Him. God's people will have a true yearning to submit themselves to Christ's will. And we see this in all the testimonies of people who come to Christ in Scripture. Everyone in Scripture who is actually born of God strives to live for God. Everyone who sincerely repents of their sin and believes on the gospel becomes a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, old things are become new. 
No one in Scripture loves God perfectly, but when we are placed in Christ, there is a new fire, a new flame to love Christ with all that we have. And this is the implication of the text. The implication of the text is that God commands that we love Him supremely more than anything else and more than anyone else, including ourselves. The implication of the text is that we should be completely devoted to God's cause. We should be entirely surrendered to God's will. The implication of the text is that God abhors, God detests spiritual complacency and apathy. God hates with a passion lukewarm faith. God is disgusted by our lame excuses as to why we can't do His will. You see, the implication of the text is that God wants us to be entirely preoccupied with Him. God wants us to seek first the kingdom of God and Christ's righteousness. He doesn't want some of our life or even most of our life. He wants all of our life. God doesn't want just our Sundays. God wants our Mondays and our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays and our Thursdays and our Fridays and our Saturdays. You see, God doesn't want you to worship Him only when times are bad and only when times are good. God wants us to worship Him all the time. He wants us to set our affections on Him continually. He wants us to focus our souls on that which is holy rather than focusing on that which is physical. And unlike the church in Laodicea, he wants us to see our spiritual weakness so that we might rely on his strength. He wants us to know him intimately. He wants us to be a bright and burning light to this lost and dying world. This is the implication of the text, the answer to the question that is asked of Jesus. So now the question becomes, how do we do this? We see the answer given by Christ. So what practical steps can we implement in our lives that will help us love God and love other more? Jesus' answer is clear. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. Jesus commands us to love Him with all that we are and to love others sacrificially. Okay, we have that down. So how do we move toward that end? How do we move toward that goal? We should have an answer. We should know. So in our second main point, let me give you a few implementations on how the response of Christ can be worked out day by day. And there are many things I could list, but for sake of time, I want to give you what I believe to be the top seven spiritual disciplines that will stimulate a greater love for God and others in 2024. So starting with the first part of the command, namely loving God with all the heart, the first way we can grow to love God more in 2024 is by having an intimate relationship with God's Word. Having an intimate relationship with God's Word. Now catch what I just said. I did not say we grow to love God by owning a Bible. 
I did not say we grow to love God by knowing these stories or the facts of the Bible. I did not say that we grow in love by performing some religious ritual by merely reading our Bibles and checking off a box that we read the Bible for the day. I said we grow to love God by having an intimate relationship with God's Word. And by this I mean, first and foremost, treasuring God's Word more than anything. Seeing it as more precious than silver, more costly than gold. This book is worth more than all the money in the world. Do we treasure it as such? This is a gift given by God. It is supernatural. It is divine. This is God's love letter. Do we treasure it? And through the reading of Scripture, we come to know who God is. We come to meditate upon what He has done. We reflect upon His commands. We reflect upon His counsels and instructions and rebukes so that we might be led to love Him more. And when we read God's Word, our desire is not to read it to know it intellectually, but to obey it so that we will actually grow in Christ. You see, we cannot separate our love for God and our love for Scripture. The two go hand in hand. Where there is true love for God, there will always be true love for the Bible. Our relationship with God's Word reveals our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is tied in with our relationship with God's Word. You cannot have a strong relationship with God if you constantly ignore God's Word. You can't. If you want to be a strong tree planted by the rivers of water, if you want to be fruitful, Psalm 1 tells us, you must meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. You want to have good success in your Christian life, and I'm not talking about physical success, I'm talking about spiritual success, Joshua 1.8, then you must meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. You see, God's word is our bread. It's our meat. It's our milk. It's our life. So if you want to grow to love God more in 2024, this means you must be resolved each and every day to let the mirror of God's word expose you. Examine you, cleanse you, wash you. You must be resolved to let God's word be a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. If you want to love God's word, if you want to love God more, you must treasure, read, meditate upon, and obey God's word. It really is that simple and yet that difficult. Test me on it. Look back at those times in your life where you had a burning love for God's Word and you were truly in it, giving your heart to know God through these pages. And then think about those times where you were neglectful and how hopeless and how miserable and how depressed you were. If you want to grow in your love for God more, then you need to grow in your love for Scripture more. Point number two, 
If you want to love God more, you must constantly commune with God in prayer. You must constantly commune with God in prayer. And again, notice I did not say you must say your prayers. I said you must constantly commune with God in prayer. Now there's a great difference between saying your prayers and praying. There's a great divide between uttering words to God and communing with God in prayer. For some of you, this is a strange concept. You don't know what I'm talking about. Saying your prayers is a religious activity that treats God as some genie or some convenience store. But true biblical praying consists of fellowshipping with God as friend to friend. True prayer involves turning off the phone, turning off the TV, turning off all the ringing and dinging and pouring out your soul to God. Do you know anything about this? True prayer involves being still and knowing that God is God, listening for God's still small voice. Now, I'm not speaking of some mystical experience that the charismatic or Pentecostal speak of. I'm speaking of constantly crying out to God through the course of your day. That's what it is to pray. Do you see? It's not, well, I'm going to pray, so let me just take my time card, check in. God, help me, help me, help me, help me. Check out. Now I'm done praying. I think that's the concept of many people. Pastor wants me to pray. Okay, I'm going to be resolved at 9 o'clock every morning to pray for five minutes. Five minutes are over. I'm done praying for the day until 9 o'clock the next day. So what am I talking about? Constant communing with God. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about waking up in the morning and saying, God, I need you. I cannot live this life for your glory by myself. Without you, I can do nothing. Lord, please help me to honor you in all that I say and all that I do. It begins there. And then as you move through the day, when you face a difficulty, you cry out to the Father saying, Lord, help me to be Christ-like. Now we're going to be tempted in our flesh as we battle the wicked one to respond in an unchristian way. So we're constantly praying, Lord, you know my heart, you know my temptations, you've got to help me. When you're tempted to sin, or when you give way to sin, you immediately run to the throne of grace and find mercy, saying, Lord, forgive me. Against you and you only have I sinned. I should not have thought that. I shouldn't have said that. I should have responded differently. Lord, please forgive me. You see, every Christian should pray to the same degree that they breathe. Jonathan Edwards said, quote, Prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. So we breathe in God's promises. Notice how the two points connect. We breathe in the promises of God, and then we breathe out prayers to God. We breathe in truth, and we breathe out, Lord, you said, help me. If we want to grow in our love for God in 2024, we must learn to develop an intimate relationship with God in prayer. 
Point number three. If we want to grow to love God more in 2024, we must fight sin ferociously. Ferociously. If there's one thing that hinders our relationship with God more than anything, it's our sin. What is sin? Well, knowing that God commands us to do something and not doing it. Or knowing that God has commanded us to refrain from certain things and giving way to such practices. I'm not talking about what we consider to be big sins. Big sins. Well, okay, the pastor said fight sin ferociously, so yes, I'm going to stay away from being an alcoholic. I'm going to stay away from adultery and fornication, and I'm not going to bow down to any false idols. No, I'm talking about all sin. All sin hinders our relationship with God. All sin will keep us from loving God as we ought. All sin is a cancer to our soul. Listen, even the smallest of leaks can take down a great ship. We see this in David's life. This man who had a heart for God, one look of lust led David down a pathway of great ruin. So what we need to do in our Christian life is battle with all of our might to stay away from sin. Don't see how close you can get to the edge without falling over. See how distant you can stay from sin. Rather than filling our hearts and minds with the filth of this world and justifying it by saying, well, I have liberty in Christ to watch these rated R movies with cussing and perversity. We need to wash our hearts and wash our minds with the water of God's word. I think Romans 12, 2 summarizes this point very distinctly. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be careful, sin is so subtle. Teaching us then that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And then fusing this point with our first main point, let me make sure that you understand that God has ordained His people to fight against sin with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When we know... When we obey God's word as we ought, we will stay away from sin as God commands. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word, by putting it into practice. If we're too busy doing the will of the Lord, we're too busy to sin, you see? But if we're not busy about the kingdom of Christ, we'll have plenty of time to sin. You see, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. And let me also say under this point that James says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So sin is not merely the committing of something that is inherently evil. Sin is the omitting of those things that are holy and good. Neglecting your Bible is a sin. Refusing to forgive someone is a sin. Seeing a brother in need and refusing to help is a sin. 
So here's point number three. If you want to grow to love God more, we must endeavor to ferociously fight sin. Just as Jesus commands us. What did Jesus say? He said, if your eye offend you, then pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. Well, that's going to require effort. That's going to require pain sometimes. Separation from the things that we used to love or people that we used to associate with. And point number four, if we want to grow to love God more, we must prioritize the Lord's day. We must prioritize corporate worship. I know I'm always getting back to this point, but it seems that this is a common sin in our day. How can we grow to love God more if we constantly despise His church? How can we tell others that God is the priority of our lives when we treat Sunday as a common day? You say, Pastor, you're only making this point because you're the pastor and you need to manipulate people to come listen to you every Sunday. No, I'm saying it because Hebrews 10.25 says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Ephesians 5.25, Jesus Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. And if Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, I think we ought to love the church and give ourselves for it. So I'm asserting that one of the ways we can grow to know God's word more, one of the ways we can grow in prayer, one of the ways we can be spiritually washed, one of the ways we can grow to love others more is through the local church. Again, see how these points connect. What is the focal point of the church? The Word of God. So as we hear the teaching and the preaching of God's Word, we grow to understand it. We grow to want it more. What is God's house to be? It's to be a house of prayer. Through the house of prayer, we learn to pray. To pray more according to God's will. So God has ordained the local church to be a place through which we are sanctified, a place that we grow. And I found over the years that there's, there's a direct correlation between those who know God's Word, those who are God-fearing Christians, those Christian lives that are spiritually blessed, and those who are fully committed to the church. There is a direct correlation between it, between those who are always joyful in the Lord, those who are very mature and those who go to church every opportunity that they have. And then on the contrary, I've seen people wishy-washy in their attendance. People come and go as they please. People come only when there's a potluck, and their life is full of sorrow, full of trouble, and full of cheerlessness. So could it be that so many Christians who neglect the Lord's day and the Lord's church are miserable. They're spiritually struggling because they are shooting themselves in the foot. They're willfully sinning against God and they're trying all the while to justify their disobedience. I'm just asking a question. Could it be that so many Christians are not growing as they should because God's house, God's appointed means are not important as it should. 
prove me wrong from Scripture, but as I see things, those Christians who were committed to the church in Jerusalem at the end of Acts chapter 2 were blessed and happy Christians. They were people who were growing in their love for God and love for others. And it was partly due to their commitment to Christ's church. Remember Acts chapter 2? Daily they were gathered praising God. They didn't have to. Nobody took them by the neck and said, you're going to meet with God's people whether you like it or not. But joyfully, daily, gathering together, singing praises, hearing God's word, fellowshipping. Commitment to Christ's church. They were growing by leaps and bounds. So it's no wonder when persecution hit, they went everywhere preaching the name of Christ. They were ready. They were united soldiers at one cause, strengthened in the Lord, accountable one to another. We're losing that more and more in our day. So we need to keep this a priority. If you want to grow in the Lord in 2024, you must strive to be committed to worshiping the Lord with the Lord's people as often as you can. Now, because of time, I need to be brief in giving you the next three points, but I hope you will not consider them to be less important because of my lack of exposition about them. Point number five, if you want to grow to love God more, you must get your finances in order. Get my finances in order? Yes. You say, how does loving God and my finances relate to each other? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm about to tell you. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. So I'm suggesting from these truths this. If you are to love God as you ought, you must make sure that money is a tool in your life, not a tyrant in your life. You must make sure that you have control over your money rather than your money having control over you. You must guard against the sins of covetousness, greed, and discontentment that will take your soul down. You must learn to give to the Lord through the local church and to give to others as the Lord leads you to. You can call me a prosperity preacher all you want, but I'm thoroughly convinced that if you never give to the Lord, if you never give to others sacrificially, or if you're purposely stingy in your giving to the Lord and others, you are hindering yourself from going in the Lord. You are running the Christian race hamstrung. You're hopping along. Some of you need to listen to what I'm saying. I'm trying to help you. I have no idea who gives what at Calvary. I'm purposely ignorant of what goes through the tithes and offerings. But I can tell you, through the lack of blessing, through the lack of joy in some people's life, that they are stingy. Their priorities are backwards, and they're robbing God. So I'm saying, if you want to grow to love God more, you must get your personal finances in order. 
you must start implementing biblical management skills. You must be a hard worker. You must strive to get out of debt. You must use your money as a gift to serve. Serve God and his kingdom. Serve others rather than just acquiring things for yourself, keeping up with the Joneses. This is point number five. You must get your personal finances in order. Point number six. If you want to grow to love God more, you must use your time wisely. Use your time wisely. Time is a precious gift of God. Our life is a vapor. It is here for a moment and then gone in the next. And God, throughout His Word, urges us to use our time wisely. God instructs us to do all that we can to live for eternity while we can. You do realize none of us have the promise that we will see 2025. None of us have the promise that we will make it through January. None of us know how much time we have in this world. None of us are promised good health and strength in the months to come. So we must serve the Lord now while we have the time, energy, and opportunity. So under this point, let me get real practical. Let me get real pastoral. Let me ask the question, what needs to be adjusted regarding the use of your time? Hobbies and various entertainments are not bad in and of themselves, but how much time is wasted on trivial things? What can you implement in your life so that the trivial can be replaced with things that will benefit your soul? We're talking about time. Time is fleeting even now. Our time and our testimony are connected to each other. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ shall last. So what do you want to be said of you at your funeral? Think about that. What do you want to be said? That you are always on your phone? That you idolize sports? That you spent your time scrolling Facebook, looking at Instagram? That you spent hours upon hours upon hours watching movies? If you want to grow to love God more, we must assess the use of our time. And again, see the connection. Well, I don't have time to pray and read the Bible. I don't have time to go to church. Why? You make time for what's important to you. If it's important to you, you'll sacrifice other things so that you might give yourself to the best things. Come on, let's be real honest. We all have time to give reading God's Word and praying. Our problem is we have too much time on our hands and it leads us to laziness and apathy. If you want to grow to love God more, we must assess the use of our time. And then real quickly, point number seven, if we're going to grow in our love for God, then we must consciously choose to live by faith. We must consciously choose to live by faith. Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. We must strive to walk by faith, not by sight. What does that mean? That means we strive to live by the promises of God. 
We, we strive to live by those things that are not seen rather than those things that are seen. We must learn to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, not leaning on our own understanding, not being wise in our own eyes. We must believe that God's Word is true and that God's ways are the best ways, even when things don't make sense to us in our finite minds. Well, it doesn't make sense to give ourselves to the things of God. doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. God says it's true, so it's true. It doesn't make sense to give sacrificially to the work of the Lord. It doesn't make sense to tithe and go beyond the tithe and give to missions. It doesn't make sense. How will things work out? I've worked it out on paper. Yeah, that's faith. Just come over to the Coleman residence and we'll show you seven kids how things work. We don't know. We have barrels upon barrels upon barrels of clothes in abundance and we've barely purchased any. And the question that was first hurled at us when we started having all these kids was, well, how are you going to afford it? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. God has abundantly provided. So we trust in His provisions. We choose to live by faith in the new year. Whatever comes, Look at it through the eyes of faith, believing that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His will. These are seven practical ways that we can grow to love God more in 2024. Now, turning to the second part of Jesus' answer, let me give you four spiritual disciplines that will provoke a greater love for others. So we've looked at the first part. We've looked at the vertical, loving God. We need to grow to love God more. And listen, if we grow to love God more, naturally we will grow to love others more. And the command is both. The command is to love God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength first, and then to love others as ourselves. So the question now is, how can we strive to love others? And then, who are the others that Jesus is talking about? Well, I've separated them into four categories. I'll give them to you by way of exhortation. In the new year to come, let me encourage you to strive to love your physical family more. Strive to love your physical family. And by physical family, I mean your natural family, your biological husband, your biological wife your biological son, your biological daughter, your biological grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, whoever is still alive, whoever you rub shoulders with the most. God has put us in our families for a reason. And zooming in on this point, I want to encourage husbands and wives to strive to love each other more in 2024. Listen, parents of children, there's nothing more than your, that your children need apart from salvation than you loving each other. They need to see that. So strive to have a home that is peaceful, that is heavenly, that is full of sacrificial love. Parents, let me encourage you. You need to shepherd and spend time with your children more, not less, but more in 2024. So let's go back to the time element. Dads, moms, we only have so much time to mold our children for Christ. Only so much time, and it's fleeting. They need us. 
God has put them in our household for a reason. So what goals can you make for the new year? What books can you read that will help you shepherd your children? Come on, I'm being real practical here. This is the outworking of Jesus' command. God forbid that we should love those outside of our household rather than those inside our household. God forbid that we should want to be a witness for Christ in the workplace while we ignore the souls of our own children. In the new year to come, we need to strive to love our physical families more. Do you have a lost family member that you're burdened for? How are you going to reach them? Reach them through love. With all their imperfections. Make sure to love them. Don't forget. Yes, it's good to give them a Bible. Yes, maybe there are times for debates and arguments. But remember, where love is felt, the message will be heard. People don't care how much you know about God until they know how much you care. You should want to be a witness to your physical family. But do they know that you love them? Are there evidences that you love them? Point number two, in the new year to come, strive to love your spiritual family more. Strive to love your spiritual family more. Galatians 6.10, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, but especially unto them who are of the household of faith. John says, 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Jesus says, John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And let's go back to our third point. If we are going to grow in our love for our spiritual family, I guess this means that we need to take the time to be around them. I guess this means we need to be prayerful about who we can love on and through what practical ways we can lavish our love on others within the church. And having exposited Peter's words in 1 Peter, I would encourage you to strive this year, put it on your calendar, make it a goal, strive to be more hospitable to the brethren. Invite them over to your home. Cook a meal. If you don't have a home, or if that's not doable, then serve others in another tangible way. Meet for coffee. Take a brother or sister out for lunch. Love on your spiritual family. People need to be loved. You're discouraged? Well, there are others discouraged in the church. You're downcast? You need, to pray. You need prayer? Others need prayer. You see, it's that iron sharpening iron. As you love, you're blessed. As you give, you get. As you do, others start doing for you. It's just natural. So love on your spiritual family. Be thankful for this bond we have in Christ. Point number three, in the new year to come, strive to love your enemies more. Were you expecting that one? Do we see that one in Jesus' command? Jesus says we need to love others as ourselves. Well, who are the others? We like to reinterpret that. The others are those that we get along with the best. The ones who like the same sports teams as us. The ones who like the shop at the same store as we do. Yeah, we'll love on those. That's easy to love on that. 
No, no. The fulfillment of Jesus' command, Matthew 22, involves loving our enemies. Jesus does not say, love everyone except your enemies. Jesus explicitly says, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. You say, how do we love our enemies? Well, number one, pray for them. If they don't know Christ, pray that they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Pray for their soul. If at all possible, seek to live peaceably with all men. Do what you can to reconcile the relationship. Now, sometimes you strive to make things right and they won't have it, but at least you can pillow your head at night knowing that you've made an effort. As long as it relates to God, you know that you've made a conscious act in trying to make things right. You can humble yourself, ask for forgiveness if needed, exercise grace, invite them over for a meal. Jesus ate with his enemies. And under this point, strive to love those who differ from you. They may not be your fierce enemy, but you, you may stay away from those who are a little bit strange, those who annoy you. Well, you need to strive to love them. You don't have to tell them that they annoy you, but you get what I'm saying. Strive to love them as Christ. Don't you think the disciples annoyed Christ from time to time? And yet he loved them. He loved them to the end. And then finally, point number four. In the new year to come, strive to love the world through gospel relationships and gospel endeavors. Strive in the new year to come to be more soul conscious. Seek to be a deliberate witness for Christ in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your community. Go out of your way to tell others the good news of the gospel. Give others a gospel tract. Carry gospel tracts. Give others a gospel of John. Ask them to read it. And don't just evangelize with your lips. Make sure your life is consistent with loving God. If you try to evangelize, telling others the gospel, but your life is a mess, you're not going to be effective. So this means in our day-to-day -day dealings, we must deal justly with others. We must strive to be honest. We must endeavor to be a hard worker. We must be patient. We must be forgiving. We must have the virtues of Christ pouring out of us as we preach the goodness of God. You see, this is the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity involves loving God and loving others. So I'm encouraging you tonight to be purposeful, to be resolved. Make prayerful goals for 2024. Make prayerful goals as it pertains to loving God and loving others more. Listen, it's not going to happen by accident. It's not. Nothing happens by accident. Loving God and others is something that is active, not passive. It takes place when we deliberately die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. So with that said, what area of your life do you need to adjust? What practical ambitions do you need to set before you? What specific thing are you going to decide in your heart 
saying to the Lord, God, by your grace, with your help, I'm going to... Come on, there should be something. What is it? Is it in relation to a besetting sin that you want victory over? Is it in relationship to the reading of Scripture? Is it in relation to prayer? Is it in relation to being more faithful to church, to evangelizing someone who doesn't know Christ? Don't enter into the new year without pointing your feet towards something tangible that you can step toward. What does God want of us in 2024? He wants us to love Him and love others more. That's His will for your life. So many people get caught up on the will of God. What's the will of God? What's the will of God for my life? I think that's the most Google search question a Christian can ask Google. How do I know God's will? How do I know God's will? Here it is. Matthew 22. As you grow to love God and others more, God will reveal His will to you. It will come. Don't put the cart in front of the horse. Don't get so wrapped up in the doing or the wanting to know God's will that you miss God's revealed will in loving Him. You love God. You love the guide. And He will direct your steps. You see how that works? You just grow intimate with Him and He'll work everything out.